You're listening to the Critical Mass Radio Show Speaker Series. This show is a live panel discussion in front of an audience of CEOs and executives from the Southern California business community with your host, Richard Franzi. Alrighty, let's all get started. Bill, you're going to be the first one. I'm going to ask this question. Can you tell us about today's market? And, and I'll ask the other three panels to add to what Bill's going to say. Specifically, how difficult or easy is it to start a business in today's economy? Well, I would answer that as both difficult and easy, depending on the type of business you're starting. If it's a if it's a, going to be a small business uh, as a sole proprietorship, depending on the particular industry you're going in, it could be relatively easy. Uh, but typically, from my experience, any business that one starts today is actually rather complicated. And if a person's got the passion and he's got the energy and the desire, there's a pretty good chance he'll drive it through. Thank you. Would we like to continue the conversation? Can we add something more to what he said? Yes. Um, well, uh, there's uh, sort of two competing factors here. Uh, right now, it's easier for people to start businesses than ever before, largely because of the technology. You know, if you have an iPhone, a laptop, an Internet connection, a wireless connection, you can start a business, basically. The bad news is there's more competition than ever because it's so much easier to get in there. Everybody wants to do it. It's exciting to do. More people are considering entrepreneurship as a career than ever before. Um, so it's exciting. Um, it's, it's easier to to get in, but it's much tougher to compete. Mm-hmm. For that very reason, right? More people can do it. Okay. Right. Great. Monica? Mm-hmm. I was going to say, tying on to that previous comment that was just made also with the technology, I think one important factor to consider is also the sustainability of the business long term, because now companies that don't have a social media presence or the visibility online are not able to, to capture that market and that target audience as well. Monica, do you have any statistics or reports on this matter that you could share with us? Yes, as well? uh, yeah, definitely. If you were to look at the 2015 Kaufman Index, this is actually a, an organization that measures and studies statistics regarding entrepreneurship. It's interesting. Some of the things that they pointed out is that there had been that downward trend since 2010, but since then, in 2015, there's been year-over-year growth, which has been the largest in the last 20 uh, t- last 20 years or last two decades. Um, in addition to that, the growth rate for new entrepreneurs right now is increased by 10 percent. And specifically, this translates to approximately 530,000 new business owners each month during the 2015 year. So there's been some great growth here in entrepreneurship. Um, in addition to that, some of the other factors that were, that were interesting is that male entrepreneurship has grown, and it's 63.2% of all new entrepreneurs in the 2015 year. Um, and also since the 1997 index, the percentage of entrepreneurs who are college graduates has risen from 23.7% to 33%, while the percentage of young entrepreneurs has actually declined from 34% to 24.7%. So we're seeing more college graduates starting business, but not necessarily um, the younger entrepreneurs. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And Michael, I'm going to ask you to, to add on to what the panel has said up to this point, but with your direct experience, I, I guess I want to go off script and say, are you seeing anything different with millennials that would that would add anything else to what Monica's research said, or can you add any perspective to that? Yeah, I could ask, add a couple of things, okay. Rick. Um, one is that... A lot of what we're talking about uh, is industry-specific. So there are certain industries that indeed are in a growth mode and others are in contraction. And I think we have to look at you know any of these numbers through that kind of filter. Uh, and we really have a, a different bias here in Orange County, being that we're med-tech-oriented and we're definitely gaming um, and, uh, and um, entertainment-oriented here with you know Blizzard and the Oculus uh, folks, even though they've left town, they've spawned lots and lots of businesses. So I think we have to look at it by industry. And uh, so there are definitely bright spots out there. In general, to answer your question, Rick, um, I see a tremendous amount of entrepreneurial activity. And it's happening uh, certainly at a, at a younger age. Um, speaking um, actually in the high school uh, arena, high schools now have um, entrepreneur societies and clubs where they never had it before and doing a lot of work there. Every one of the universities now has an incubator. Uh, three and a half years ago when I started Fast Start, I think I was the second 
in Orange County, and now there are 12. Uh, so there is an entrepreneurial push. There is an entrepreneurial growth, but I think it's in specific areas that makes it a little bit easier. Um, and when it comes to funding, it makes it a lot easier to stay in certain specifics. Okay, good. I'd like to follow up on that answer, but first I'd like the audience to give the panel a little bit of love for their first round of answers. <laughs> Worried that you're finding value in what they have to say. Bill, I wonder if you could add to what Michael said about industry. From your experience, do, do, you, do you see the important, how, in, how important is the industry that an entrepreneur chooses to the to determinant of the success that that entrepreneur might have? Well, my experience has been it is very industry specific, specific to Orange County. The, most of the opportunities that we see are basically in high technology, uh, medical devices, and uh, uh, telemedicine. We're starting to see it and continue to see a lot of activity in those areas. Uh, we've also seen some activity activity in consumer goods, but primarily in the uh, in the high technology and the uh, medical device side. Michael at Fast Start Studios, what are you seeing as far as entrepreneurs coming to you with business plans? We're a little bit different, Rick, in that most incubators focus on web and mobile technologies because lower barriers of entry, uh, they scale quickly, they scale big and have great exits. But we're all about all those. Yeah, there's there's a lot to be uh, like there, and I'm, I'm uh, a capitalist at heart, so making money is not not a, a a problem with me. But the goal of Fast Start is about creating companies that will hire people. It's about creating jobs. So we don't just focus on web and mobile technologies, but across the board. So we have consumer goods, we have services, we have med tech, green tech, um, a lot of different technologies, as well as the web and mobile. So we're sort of agnostic. We've got 19 companies in 19 different verticals right now. Wow. Excellent. And Shan, in, at the Leatherby, what are you seeing from students coming to you with business proposals? And well, uh, let me give a little background first. Uh, one of the things that drew me to Southern California was that uh, some people told me that uh, one of the few industries where the U.S. still has the lead over the rest of the globe is in entertainment. And uh, L.A. is the entertainment capital of the world, and it so happens that Chapman has one of the top ten film schools in the country. So we see a, a heavy influence from that. We see a lot of entrepreneur teams at the student level um, that are somehow related to entertainment, not, not necessarily just making films, but uh, things that may change the business model uh, in the industry, uh, the technology that goes along with it, and so forth. But, Rick, if I could shift things a little bit away from the industry perspective itself, one of the interesting things about entrepreneurs, you're asking for statistics. There's a study done by Aileen Lee of Cowboy Ventures that showed that of the last 40 or so what they call unicorns, these are software companies that achieved a billion-dollar valuation, what they found was the average age at founding was 34. Typically, took an average of about seven years for these companies to, uh, you know, have an exit or achieve, you know, major success. Which means that average age then is 41. So the myth is that um, the uh, entrepreneurs are all young students, like at Chapman. When in fact, um, at Chapman, what we're doing is creating the first experience, perhaps, for an entrepreneur. And what this same study found was that the founders may, uh, when they had their big discovery uh, at 34, it was their second, third, or fourth uh, launch. So what they did in those early years was they were meeting their future partners. They were gaining experience. They were getting ready for the big discovery. Um, but the big discoveries and the big successes actually occur at a more in middle age than in early age. Now, that's skewed towards, again, uh, uh, 40 uh, software companies. But uh, it's an interesting statistic that's not people that people aren't generally aware of. That is. Thank you for sharing with our audience. Monica, I wonder, from your perspective, or think about or understand before they go out to look for funding, before they go and look for people to invest in their big idea? Yes, definitely. I would say that there's there's three critical aspects to this. First one being to develop a business plan. 
having a solid idea of what's your vision, what's your product, what's the niche, what target audience market are you really looking at, at seeking? The second part of this, and it supplements or comments that initial business plan, is really looking at what are you planning to do with the funding, how much funding is needed, how is it going to be allocated, where is it going to be most effectively optimized for your business to see success long term? And then the third step that I would, I would really uh, suggest or recommend would be to develop an elevator pitch, whether it's your 60 seconds. What's really important is for your ability to vocalize and communicate effectively what is at the core of your business, because that's going to go out to capitalists, it will go out to angel investors, but also it will go out to your audience. So making sure that, that that's very clear. Having taught the MBA capstone here at Brandman University, I see a lot of students that have developed these great ideas in their businesses, and that's what I tell them, is that it's great, and I've seen it in, in the full version, 60 to 100 pages, but make sure you can still see it within 60 seconds, because when that pitch comes, it's important to be able to communicate that succinctly. Excellent advice. You know, I wanted to circle back, if I could, Dan. You, you, you had talked about how later in life there are the entrepreneurs that are successful. So, so, so can we broaden it to say, how important is previous experience in the area, industry, uh, to a determinant of the success of the entrepreneur who has a startup idea? How important is their experience? Well, uh, obviously very important. Um, I think there's a lot of different ways to get experience. So while the study showed that, um, you know, the average age, again, at co-founding was 34, um, what those, I'll call them students, were doing prior to that was gaining experience in verticals. So it might be software, it might be entertainment, it might be something else. But they're also gaining what we call horizontal skills. So they're learning about how to grow things fast, uh, how to validate their market, um, how to compete. And so those skills are just as important. Um, so it's it's not so much how many years of experience you have, but um, you know what you do with it. Excellent. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the outside of the panel now, and I'm going to ask Michael and Bill to kind of talk a little bit about, is it ever too early? For, uh, for an entrepreneur to think about starting a company? Well, in a, in a recent um, TED Talk, um, uh, Bill Gross, founder of Idea Labs, was, uh, was talking recently in the TED Talk, and I think it's been out a little bit, and they've had over 800,000 views, so it's resonating with people. And he says he started at 12 years old at a bus stop selling candy to college students as they uh, got on a bus. So if he can do it at 12, and and, uh, and we know Bill Gates' age when he started, I would say no, there is uh, there is no barriers, no boundaries. I myself um, are teaching um, elementary school kids how to program at Coder Dojo OC, and I've got an, a 10-year-old that's built eight uh, websites, an 11-year-old that's been built two iOS apps so if you can do it you know before puberty I guess you can do it at any time <laughs> thank you Bill I'll add on to that as a, speaking from the angel investor community and I'll tag on to Monica's comments as well um no, it's not too early. It, again, it all depends on the entrepreneur and, and his background and, and his experience. Uh, one of the add-ons I wanted to add to Monica's comments was, yes, a business plan is obviously very important, but an investor presentation is what angel investors really want to see. And at the end of the day, it's that compelling story that the entrepreneur puts together, that 15 to 16-page PowerPoint presentation. That's where it really becomes critical. The elevator pitch that she mentioned is absolutely critical, not only for the investor, but it's also very critical that the entrepreneur understands the elevator pitch to a point where he can articulate it to the customers, to the investors, and anybody else that he talks to. So coupling the the, the uh, elevator pitch along with the um, PowerPoint presentation or the uh, what I call the compelling investor presentation are absolutely critical that the entrepreneur puts those two together. Thank you. Shan, do you want to add anything to the conversation? Yeah, there is some controversy about this uh, too early thing, though. So Bill mentioned the investor perspective. Uh, from an entrepreneur's perspective, it's not too early, just like just like Michael was saying. But uh, investors are saying, we want you as entrepreneurs to focus totally on your business if we're going to invest in you, which means going to college concurrent with that gets in the way. So one of the things we're dealing with at Chapman and elsewhere is uh, the students are being told, look, if you're really serious about this, drop out of school. 
And so that presents a heck of a challenge for those of us who are trying to promote entrepreneurship within uh, the university or the college. Um, choice. So we're going through that with a couple of our students right now where uh, the opportunity they've is, uh, is booming and they've had to make some tough choices. So in general, we would like to see people continue their education, get ready for later in life when they're maybe going to hit the big home run. But there's a lot of pressure from investors. If you want to get the funding, you need to focus solely on this. Uh, some <laughs> some investors go so far as to say, don't go to school, don't, don't have a relationship, don't do anything else in your life, but focus, focus, focus on your business. So it's a, it's an interesting controversy. That is. Thank you for sharing that. Until you said that, I did. I never thought of it, but after you said it, it kind of makes perfect sense, right? You know, your own students are being encouraged to do something that might not be in their, that you might perceive not perceive to be in their business, uh, long-term interest. We have one last question before we take our first commercial break here on Critical Mass, our speaker series at Brand University in the Irvine campus, and that is... What kind of research, and I'm going to start with Michael and we'll walk down right down the panel. What kind of research do you suggest an entrepreneur do to start to figure out what's the right types of sources of funding that they should con- – there are a myriad of different ways they can find funding and funders and investors. What kind of general advice would you give? And then, Monica, I'll ask you to pick up on what Michael says, okay? Oh, thanks a lot, Rick. That's a loaded <laughs> question. And, That's why I started Yeah, you. and uh, one that has many, many answers. Um, I'm just going to take a little bit of – a slight swing at that, okay? Not the whole thing. I'll let the panel deal with the hard stuff. <laughs> but I, but I would say, Rick, you know, if there's a knock, you're at home and there's a knock on the door, and there it is. Hello, Mr. Franzi. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Why are you, why are you visiting me? <laughs> I, I want you to write me a very big check today because I'm a really neat guy. <laughs> What do you think the odds are, Rick? Get out of here. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> so I would say you start way early and you, you create a relationship. It's not just about the money. Everybody thinks it's just about the money. It's not. It's about the contacts and resources and support you're going to get from those that are investors. And to do that, you have to make sure it's a good fit, right? It's not just about taking money. It's about taking smart money, money that, that it comes from individuals or organizations that have an alignment with what you're trying to build and have an understanding and have reach in what you're trying to build. So it's just not the capital resources, it's contacts, it is, it's knowledge, and it comes from starting a relationship first. I'd get to know Bill Waldo down there really good before I ever asked him to, to submit me to his committee, right, Bill? I think it'd be a very good idea. <laughs> so everybody, after this is over, pile on Bill. Yes. Thank you for that, Michael. Okay, That's Bill. That's very helpful. Lock the doors, ladies and gentlemen. Monica, can you build on that? Sure, yes. Just to, to build on what Michael just mentioned, I agree that the relationships and the networking aspects are so critical and that's where I would really recommend starting the research is going to small business administrations and organizations really networking with individuals at conferences and anywhere you can go to really find out more information SCORE is another great organization that provides resources for individuals starting a a business Uh, so definitely just looking at the resources and opportunities that are here Mm -hmm. Sean? So uh, the biggest problem we see, I think, uh, a lot of times when people present to angels is the presenters overemphasize their product. And what we would actually like to see is that there's more research done on the market, getting that market validated, testing it with uh, real customers. So that research will impress us a lot more than than a deep, deep knowledge of your product, which we assume you're going to have. I think people ought to be researching is the competition. Um, We get very suspicious of entrepreneurs that show up and say, well, I have no real competition. (laughs) All that means is you've not done much competitive intelligence, you've not done much competitive analysis, and you're not going to be ready to compete when those competitors eventually emerge uh, because they're out there um, in almost any field you can name. And then the third area that doesn't get mentioned as much is I think it's important to be researching your current and future teams. So who's going to be part of your core team? Who's going to be part of your board of advisors? Uh, who's going to help you down the road once you get beyond the stage of being a sole proprietor? Because at the stage of being a sole proprietor, you're not likely to get much funding from angels. There are other sources you can go to early on, 
But if you're going to get outside money, uh, you're going to get so-called smart money uh, from from serious, experienced investors. They're going to want to see a team. So the level of research should be vital. We are going to look at, you know, how do you find teammates? How well do you get along as teammates? How do you deal with control and controversy issues? Um, that's going to be one of the acid tests before anybody puts any money in. Thank you. Bill, can you wrap up the thought on this I can, subject? I can try and do that. Research, obviously, is very critical. But when you're looking for investors and where do you go, who do you talk to, obviously relationships, developing relationships is absolutely core in this. Uh, I advise a lot of my clients to get involved with these mixers that are going on. There's a number of mixers that are held on a regular basis. It gives you a chance to get to know, for example, a Tech Coast Angels member, a Kritsu member, or a, a private capital network member. It gives you a chance to start developing relationships with these investors. You also want to understand where I'm really going. Am I very early, am I seeking seed capital or am I really going after a Series A round? If I'm going after seed capital, chances are I'm going to have a better chance of going after family and friends. And if I'm going to do that, I want to become prepared for that. I don't want to go and knock on the door, as, as Michael was referring to, and have the door slam in my face. I want to be able to properly present exactly what my business model is. And I want to put together the proper documents. And I want to make sure that I'm doing it on a professional basis. So I would be looking for family, friends for the initial seed round, and I would also be exploring opportunities through networking with uh, angel investors and other high net worth people who have an understanding of my industry. And also keep in mind that, and most entrepreneurs forget this, but really what they need is experience along with the check. So if you get a check read, that's great, but the the fact that the entrepreneur or the investor has experience and can, and can provide relevant experience to help grow the company, that, along with the check, oftentimes is even more valuable. Thank you. We're going to take our commercial break here on Critical Mass Radio Show. For those of you that are listening to us live on octalkradio.net, don't go anywhere because we'll be right back. We have a lot more to cover with this panel after these words from our commercial sponsors. Richard Franzi is the author of two popular business books for CEOs. His first book, Critical Mass, The Explosive Powers of CEO Peer Groups, was the first book ever written on the secret value of CEO peer groups. His second book, now with newly updated information, is Critical Mass, The Power of CEO Guiding Principles. Richard's books contain powerful information to help CEOs running middle market companies gain valuable insight to improve their decision-making skills. Richard's books are available as paperbacks or or Kindle versions from Amazon.com. To find them, type Richard Franzi in the search box. Welcome back to Critical Mass Radio Show Speaker Series, recording live at Brandman University. We here at the Critical Mass Radio Show would like to thank and acknowledge our listeners who download our shows, the podcast. We've downloaded several thousand shows during the past month, and we sincerely appreciate your continued and growing support. All of our shows can be heard live on internet radio station octalkradio.net or rebroadcast anytime from iTunes, Stitcher, various business-oriented podcasting services. And remember to connect with us online. My Twitter handle is CEO Peer Groups. My LinkedIn is Richard Rick Franzi. And on your favorite podcasting software, type in Critical Mass Radio Show. You'll get our weekly updates as well as these special events like our live show here from Brandman University. During the commercial break, one of the members of our audience uh, said that he wanted to ask you a question. So, Baron, would you ask the panel, uh, do you have anyone in particular that you want to ask the question of? No, I guess I can go to everyone. Okay. Uh, but the biggest thing is, you know, you guys are saying experience is important, knowledge, research, you know, do you know, for your you know, growing business and everything. But what about location? What, what's location to you guys as far as you know, what they're on the total pole with the research and the experience? Well, I'll take the first swing at that one in that I've been a retailer or was a retailer for 30 years. Uh, that's what I built my franchise for. And there is no overcoming a bad location, right? You could have exemplary service, a stellar product, and it's still going to take a lot of money. to. Okay. Yeah. So if you have a brick-and-mortar location, then location is critical. Okay. Would anyone else on the panel like to add to their perspective? Sure. Um, sure. Yes, and I'll go ahead and add to that. I agree that location is critical. Um, it definitely plays a really big factor, especially when you look at what type of, again, industry. We've talked about that. What 
type of product or service you're offering. A lot of the tech companies now that are going um, as startups in that type of field, mobile app development and websites and things of that nature, you can actually start with a really low overhead if you can start doing it virtually. So not necessarily having the brick and mortar building, but once you start to move to a facility, that's going to be really critical to look at how much is it costing me for rent on this location? Is it even a place that I can invite individuals to come, clients or anyone else to come and view the organization, the the services, the products? Um, So I would agree, location is critical. So I guess I have a slightly perspective in that I, I guess I see more tech companies where um, you can be virtually located, co-located, whatever. Um, I think the one critical thing about it is when investors are looking at a company, though, they want to see that you are either currently located near talent pools. So let's say you need a lot of programmers. They want to know you're in it, living in that neighborhood, or you're willing to relocate to that neighborhood. It's at the critical point in the company's development. So I think almost more important location these days is mobility. Are you ready, willing, and able to go where you need to go to have your business be a success? You know, if you're if you're living in Northern California, that may be great for you know some tech businesses. But if you're going to be in entertainment, maybe you need to be in Southern California. So the question is not where you start, but where you go to as the business develops. So I agree with all three very strongly. <laughs> Bottom line is, if it's retail oriented. Location, location, location is absolutely critical. If it is a high-tech type business, uh, you can be hiding behind a warehouse and do extremely well because it's all virtual. And from an investor's perspective, I believe in lean and mean and cut operating costs as much as possible. So if I can get away with having a warehouse and I'm building a technology-type company or a medical device company, I don't have to be in uh, on Main Street, then that's exactly where I'm going to be. Great. And I think we should give Baron a round of applause. That's good. And actually, Michael wants to add a little bit more. Yeah, uh, to tag on to what you said, you know, we've had two um, very successful local OC companies, one being Oculus and the other one SendGrid, who in the last few months, both of them have moved out of OC to Northern California because of the talent pool. And, you know, rapid growing, uh, rapidly growing organizations needing more and more uh, talent becomes a problem. Unfortunately, I think they're going to find that they move from the frying pan to the fire in that that's what I keep hearing about the Valley is that the talent is being sucked up by the giants, Google, Yahoo, and so forth, that can pay way more, and they're stealing the talent from startups. So though they're moving up there because there are, there's more programmers, etc., cetera, uh, UX, UI designers, the, the competition for that talent is fierce, and you can't win against Google. So Michael makes a very good point about... Uh, myths that, you know, I can do better if I go to Northern California because there's more money there. Yeah, there's more money there. There's also more competition, like Michael said. So be careful about looking at both the pros and the cons of making a move. While I, while I indicated earlier, I think it's very important that you are re- ready, willing, and able to be mobile. Uh, you need to do your research before you make that move because you may have, as Michael said, gone out of the frying pan into the fire. I heard um, a local executive for Google for the office, the facilities that they have here. I was at an Irvine luncheon by the mayor's state of business. And the gentleman who runs the Google facility here with 300-plus people employed there said, Orange County is a very attractive location for Google because it's an hour flight to the corporate headquarters. (laughs) And for people who don't want to live in the climate of Northern California, who prefer Southern California, Orange County, with John Wayne being so close, is a is a great location for them. So sort of the opposite, too, of maybe people thinking they have to leave this area. They, they're finding talent who doesn't want to live in the Bay Area, who prefer the lifestyle of Southern California. Agreed. All right. Um, I think the first speaker series that we did was here at Brandman. And I think the subject matter of the first speaker series that we did was crowdfunding. So, you know, here we are now over a year later, back after multiple trips to the campus here in Irvine. And and that that led me to want to ask the panel, each of you, uh, I came away from that session thinking, well, there are some real alternatives available. Crowdfunding is an alternative available to entrepreneurs and existing business owners as a funding vehicle. So can, can you share 
from your perspective, the variety of potential funding vehicles and ventures that are available to entrepreneurs. And, and we can just build on the conversation, and I'll go in reverse order this time. So, Bill, if you could start the conversation, and then we'll just work up the panel that way, okay? Sure. Crowdfunding is definitely a very good alternative. There's the Kickstarters of the world. There's Fundable.com. There's a number of good crowdfunding organizations. Have they had the impact that we anticipated, we meaning uh, angel investors? Our opinion is no. Uh, they're definitely doing deals. They're doing a number of deals, but you know, they again, again, they remain a very viable option. Uh, there are a number of other uh, choices to go to. You've got the, the, the angel investor community. You've got these micro-type, fundable-type deals that are out there now. So there's a number of different choices uh, that people are looking at uh, t- uh, today. So I like what Bill said about crowdfunding. It's uh, It created some expectations, some of which have been met and some have not. Uh, the great thing about crowdfunding is it's a great way to test market your business. Uh, you're basically putting your product out there and seeing how popular it is. So it's a variation on market validation. Um, there's there's obviously more physical products are a little bit easier to display in a crowdfunding video. So, um, you know, if you've got something that's a little bit more abstract, uh, you know, then maybe not so much. Um, one of the one of the emerging and still controversial funding sources are accelerators. Uh, when I first started coming to Southern California a few years back, there was sort of a boom in accelerators, which is continuing. And I think it's great because uh, accelerators do a couple of things that we as angels don't always do, and that is it provides a very intense three- to six-month uh, mentoring or coaching experience that as angels we may be able to cobble together if we're really motivated but the nice thing the accelerator does is it really organizes that very tightly and so uh, it's very difficult to get into an accelerator so one of the mythologies well if I can't get angel funding I'll just you know saunter on down the road and get into an accelerator it's at least as hard to get into an accelerator as it is to get angel funding and in fact when you get into an accelerator it's actually funded in many cases by angels Um, so you're still kind of dealing with the same crowd so regardless Let's keep getting to know Bill Waldo, I guess, is the lesson. Uh, (laughs) All roads lead to to Bill Waldo. uh, But it's a great addition, I think. And and the controversy is some people think accelerators are going to go away. I think they'll continue to modify and adapt uh, to the marketplace, and they're going to learn from uh, their own experiences. But it's a great addition in my mind because it really solidifies the role of mentoring in creating major successes. Thank you. And I think along these lines, looking at alternative sources and um, and I guess coming from the university setting, one other aspect that I would look at is also incubators, where you have the resources provided to you to start and operate your own business from, let's say, university location or setting. You get the mentorship that you would have from accelerators, and at the same time, you're also getting that university backing as well. So it could help to start to propel your business, your organization, as you kind of gather that research. And I think one other aspect to really look at in all of this is you're looking for funding and all of these ideas is really how much ownership are you willing to give up as part of that is also just a critical aspect to think about. Can I just uh, uh, add something to what Monica said, though? Just to be clear, at Chapman's Incubator and many others, you don't actually get funding. You might get some resources, uh, but we don't provide funding. And that's the major difference, one of the major differences between an incubator and an accelerator. When you're accepted through a competitive process into an accelerator, you invariably get some money, some seed money to start. And then if you do well during your acceleration period, then you may get uh, greater funding at the end. But with an incubator, you're getting... Some resources, typically the mentoring is not as intense, um, but you're getting lots of tender, loving care. Bill, you had your hand up for a second? I did. A question that comes up often, I think Shan started to address it. The big question I get all the time is, what is the difference between an accelerator and an incubator? So as a panelist, I'll switch gears here and direct that to my colleague here, Shan, as well as Michael. I think there is probably, is there a short way to define the difference between the two of them? Well, two of the differences, I'll just reiterate. One is that with an accelerator, you're typically, as you apply, you're, you're getting funding at the beginning. And then, if you, again, if you do well uh, during your acceleration and learning period, um, you'll be, uh, you have a greater opportunity for even bigger funding at the end of that uh, three- to six-month period. Whereas with an incubator... Uh, 
uh, you're not typically in line for for funding at the front or the back, other than on your own um, on, on your own efforts. The other big difference is the intensity of the mentoring. We have mostly what I would consider an incubator at Chapman, and so we have lead mentors that may meet with a team, you know, once a week or so. Uh, could be more, but in an accelerator, uh, in in many cases, not all, uh, you're sort of 24/7 exposed to some form of education. It might be your lead mentor, it might be some of the staff, it might be guest speakers, it might be group programs, um, but it's it's learning 24/7 for that three to six month period, and so it really is an accelerating experience. I mean, it lives up to its name. Michael, there's probably another difference I'm not remembering, but <laughs> yeah, I, I have a different definition. Okay. Yeah, I think okay. Bill, mine isn't tied to funding. All right, mine is tied to development. So I tend to see an incubator as early on. It may be concept on the back of a napkin. It may be something much more defined. I see an accelerator as they've already gone through this developmental phase, if you will, have already um, understood who, the, what the marketplace is, their customer profile, have uh, um, laid out their their beta or an MVP, have tested and validated, maybe even have the first customers, and now it's time to run, it's time to scale. That's when they need an accelerator, if you will. That's when you step on the gas. The incubator is the development development phase in, in my book and the accelerator is the scaling. Um, we use um, uh, a textbook um, at Cal State Fullerton in, in the entrepreneurial courses uh, by Nathan Furr. It's called Nail It Then Scale It and it's exactly that. It's about nailing your processes, nailing your customer base, nailing your team, nailing how things work and then scale it. Um, the Startup Genome Project studied 3,000 technology startups and they found the number one reason for failure was not lack of funds. It wasn't the inability to raise funds. It wasn't the inability to to define your IP. It wasn't your ability to, to put a team together. It wasn't the fact that competition beat you. The number one reason for failure they found was companies scaled too quickly. Their own success collapsed them because they did not build the infrastructure. So they didn't nail it before they scale it, and they paid the price. That's that. That's what the data shows. That's number one. So I actually agree with Michael because that's what we're doing at Chapman. Um, most of our teams are in what we would call the incubator phase. But then a few of them who have, I don't know if they've nailed it exactly, but they're trying to nail it, uh, and they're getting closer, uh, then are entering into what we now call the accelerator phase of things. So I think the two can be part of a continuum. Um, but like Michael said, you've got to start with the incubation phase uh, before you get to the acceleration. Thank you very much, panel, for the thoughtful conversation. I'd like to, and you actually inspired me to go off script for just a quick question with a short answer, if you feel comfortable to answer that. Which That's is, impossible, Rick. <laughs> I was trying to set it up. Set it the, who's, he, who's he talking to? Yeah, okay. Uh, so... The image that many of us have of a successful entrepreneur might be a rugged individual, strong-willed, great idea, persistent as heck, works night and day, but is pretty much an individual. What I hear from this panel today is how important, whether it's an accelerator or an incubator or an angel investor or an education at a university, how important it is that the entrepreneur be open to being mentored and to learn from the experiences of others. So I'm going to start with Michael. And how do you coach that into the individual so that they realize there are people there that are going to help them versus they've got to do it all themselves? Short answer, Rick. That's what you're looking for. It's impossible. So I filter. <laughs> it's true. I filter it out in the intake interviews. I find a in my estimation, if I can work with that person, if they're open to suggestions, if they are coachable. If they're not coachable, they still may become, you know, the greatest entrepreneur ever, but they're certainly not going to make it, you know, in my world because if they don't listen to, to the experts that I surround them with, then it's a waste of resources and I should give that to someone who does listen. So for me, it's number one. You know, we talk about um, in the investment world, do 
do you do you invest or you do, do you bet on the jockey or the horse? And the vernacular is that the the horse being the concept and the jockey being the founder or founders. And which do you invest in? Well, obviously you're investing in both. But over and over and over again, smart investors know it's the jockey. It's the nature of the founders because what's going to happen is no matter what great idea they come with, that's not what gets built. All right, uh, Steve Blank said it best in that uh, no plan survives first contact with a customer, and that's exactly what happens. So I'm betting on the individual or his team, his or her team, uh, not as much on the concept, and if they're not coachable, I can't help them, and I'm all about helping people, so I'm not going to drive myself crazy. Uh, I'm looking for people who want help versus don't think they need help, if that answers your question. It does, yeah, but I'd like, Monica, do you have anything to add to that? Sure, yeah, I would definitely say that mentorship is critical, and when you're in the university setting, a lot of students are gaining that mentorship experience in the classroom. We bring in speakers um, or do panels, panel presentations similar to this, um, really focusing on how they can learn from others, learn from their successes, learn from their failures, learn from you know opportunities to do it differently. Um, you mentioned previously some of my positions I've held at Chapman. Uh, just to give you an example, I, I used to work in the Career Development Center. There, where my job was to help every student get a job. Those that came to me found a job. Those that didn't, I hope they found a job. <laughs> but uh, but again, I was there as a mentor to help serve and guide the students. So it's it's really about reaching out and then to kind of scale that into the entrepreneurship field. Entrepreneurs, likewise, it's just reaching out to others that can help. Um, I mentioned SCORE earlier. It's a great organization to help students really learn about the entrepreneurial process and get connected to the resources that are out there to guide in that that starting um, initial phase. Thank you, Chad. So the point isn't the mentoring relationship. Um, the point is, will the entrepreneur be able to interact with suppliers, customers, board members, employees? The mentor helps them prepare for those important relationships. So like Michael indicated, the mentor relationship is sort of a test. It's sort of an early measure of, is this entrepreneur going to be able to have these constructive interactions? So what we look for is the Goldilocks principle. We don't want somebody who listens too much, too little. We don't want someone who speaks too much, too little. What we're looking for is someone that can interact in an assertive, constructive manner in a peer fashion. We don't want people being overly subordinate or submissive. We don't want people being overly aggressive or dominant. We want people who can treat others as equals in a business kind of relationship that uh, mature people can engage in. So um, I don't want the entrepreneur that just listens to me. Um, I don't want the entrepreneur that walks away for me either, but um, but what I want them to do is engage in a meaningful dialogue, for lack of a better term, point-counterpoint, where we try to achieve some synergy together. Um, so there aren't many people that actually have that, uh, and Michael indicated a very important factor. How much of that can we possibly train people to get better at? Uh, we can. I think we can do a lot through education to improve people's uh, point-counterpoint skills. I mean, that's really part of the education process in a university when you think about it. But ultimately, will they reach the threshold where an investor will feel comfortable? Yeah, I'm going to put money in this guy or gal, and they're going to go out there and do well with their suppliers, customers, board members, and employees. Bill, final thoughts on this? Sure. TriTech, which is a sister to SCORE, which I do consulting for and is funded by the SBA and obviously is at no charge to the consultant, we spend a great deal of time with entrepreneurs, and one of the first things we talk about is coachability. And if they're not coachable, it's one of the first things we're going to spend time on. As a <laughs> as a uh, uh, screening director for Tech Coast Angels, I can't tell you how many times we've seen entrepreneurs get up and present, and one of the biggest issues during the questions and answers and also the discussion afterwards is, is he coachable? In fact, the f- first question on our questionnaire is, is the entrepreneur coachable? If he's not, we've got a serious problem. To Michael's comment, we have a phrase, and we all use it on a regular basis, and that is, at the end of the day, the, the investors have got to be in love with the with the horse. Okay, they do. But they got to be madly in love with the jockey because at the end of the day, the investment is going to be in the jockey, the team. That's what really matters. And that team leader has got to be someone you can work with. 
Michael, did you want to put yeah, one? Yeah, and, and Rick, that's just one factor. There are many, many factors. In fact, we often uh, mentor subject matter experts at um, Fast Start. We have this conversation going about are there different kinds of entrepreneurs? Are startup entrepreneurs different than other entrepreneurs? And um, that's an interesting argument in that for 30 years as a franchisor, the people who bought and came into our franchise certainly were entrepreneurs. They were taking a second out on their home or taking their retirement funds and investing in starting a business, of course, using an existing system. So they are brave people and they are entrepreneurs. But are they the same as someone who starts something that from the unknown, from zero, the ground up? And is that different? So in order to try to prove this out, we did some testing. Uh, in fact, sitting in front of me is John Chi, uh, CEO of Sinova Life Science, and John took the test. And it was a test uh, for CEOs. It was uh, 73 different components, and it created great heat maps. And we wanted to see. We gave it to 10 of our startup founders and hoping that we'd lay these uh, heat maps on top of each other. And there would be, you know, the three, four, five things, the components that successful entrepreneurs would have. And so we did the testing and spent several thousand dollars on this uh, little project to find out there was only one commonality between all these men and women that took the test, and that one thing was tenacity. They don't give up. Mm -hmm. Well, that's worth the price of admission right there, right, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you. All right, well, my field producer has let me know that we have five minutes left for the panel discussion here live today at Bramman University in our Irvine campus. So I wanted to just maybe start with Bill and ask, uh, maybe give us a one-minute review, summary, thoughts, things that you would like to have said that you get a chance to, or things that you heard today that you want to remind the audience either here and live or listening online. Sure, let me start with that. I would advise early stage entrepreneurs to really do your research, understand who your customer is, understand if you're really going to be a business-to-business type model, if you're going to be a business-to-consumer type model, B2B versus B2C, and really get that clarified. Do the research, and the further... The more traction, I guess I would say, the more traction you can gain in terms of progress before you get in front of angel investors or any high net worth investor is a very wise choice. You mitigate as much risk as possible before you get in front of investors. It increases your chance of getting their interest, and it also increases the chance of getting somebody to write a check. Because at the end of the day, typically, investors are going to look at 50, 60 deals a year, and they're going to maybe invest in two of them. So you want to be the entrepreneur that they're going to invest in. So again, the further progress, the more progress you make, the more traction you gain, get some form of proof of concept, proof of customer. Two critical areas if you're going to get in front of investors. Proof of concept, what does that mean? My definition of proof of concept is, is the customer paying for the product? Is he writing a check? Are you in revenue? Have you been able to prove that they're actually, they have interest, that you actually can prove the dog will eat the dog food and that the customer wants it? Okay? Thank you. Thank you. Shan, final thoughts? Yeah, I'm going to take a slightly different tack here. I, I guess I would invite the members of our audience uh, to think about what they've heard here today. And if it sounds like fun to you, then you're probably an entrepreneur. If it sounds like a lot of pain and suffering, then maybe this isn't the right path. I got some great, uh, I, I wouldn't even call it advice, encouragement, I guess, from my own parents who said, uh, go out and do what you love. Don't worry about the money. Uh, do what you love. Do what you're good at. And uh, pursue that. And so uh, I think that's step one is find what your own passion is, find what you're good at, and pursue it. And then if our advice about finding funding, getting other people's money helps you, then fine. But it may not take you in that direction. You may end up doing a bootstrap business where you don't need money from angels or other people. It may be a lifestyle business that doesn't have to scale rapidly. Um, Or you may want to pursue all the things that we've talked about on the panel. But don't try to fit yourself into something that doesn't work for you. Uh, you got to be true to yourself. Um, so 
look for some kind of fun meter out there at some point. I mean, obviously, there's days and nights for all of us when we had to sacrifice uh, to achieve some level of success. And so it's not that it's fun and giddy fun all the time, but it's got to be enough fun that so when you're having the tough times, you say, look, I still really want to do this. This is a choice I made. It's something I like doing. It's something I'm good at. And as Michael said, I'm going to stay tenacious to try to, to, to succeed at it, but I'm not going to try to turn myself into somebody else for the sake of the money. Monica? So I would say that uh, three R's that you should kind of think about are resources, your risk, and your research. So we've talked about all three of these elements before, but really looking at researching your product, your service, your organization, your venture that you'd like to start, looking at the resources that are there to help you and guide you along the way. And and as was mentioned before, looking at minimizing those risks that are out there. Um, There's a quote that says, the bad news is that time flies. The good news is you're a pilot. So you're all in control. (laughs) And from a a career or recruiting HR standpoint, one thing that a lot of companies are looking for, so those of you that, as was mentioned before, many of you are looking at starting your own business, but to at least get that guidance and maybe working in another company, an entrepreneurial spirit is what a lot of companies are looking for. That ties along with the tenacity that was mentioned earlier. Um, So I I wish you all the best of luck. Um, (laughs) um, It takes a lot of introspection. Uh, are you a, an entrepreneur or are you a wantrepreneur, right? It can sound sexy, right? Making all that money, the heady stuff. Um, but so it takes, a, a you know, really to understand who you are. And an example that we, we hear sometimes is an entrepreneur is the one that, that has this kit to build an airplane and jumps off the cliff and tries to assemble the plane on the way down. All right. Entrepreneurs feel they can do these things. Why? Because they probably can. Even though they've never done it before, there's that driving force inside. And if you can identify it in yourself, then maybe that's your path. If it scares the hell out of you, then maybe that's not what you should be doing. Uh, either way, um, we, have a, we have a piece of art on the wall at Fast Start uh, that I commissioned a young man who uh, turned his life around. He used to be a tagger, and he went to jail for doing that. And through his introspection, he became a graphic artist, an amazing artist. And I, the very first thing I think I did was I paid him to create a piece of art for me that hangs on the wall in the anime style, and it says, Start Now. So it's about having the courage to do something. Even if you fail, that's really not the end of the game because we, we believe in failing forward. But if you don't get in the game, you can never score. You can't score from the sidelines, folks. So I would say start now. Get in there. It's a great way to learn who you really are in the pressure and the stress, and it could be a hell of a great ride. Thank you very much. May I ask for a round of applause for the panel? I, I think we covered a lot of ground, and you guys gave, and ladies gave a lot of good content, and thank you for the interaction between the panel and the live audience here at Brandman University, the Irvine campus. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the show today, both online and here in person, and if you're listening to us as a podcast, hopefully you found this hour to be time well spent. I am your host, Rick Franzi, and if you'd like to hear more interviews from Critical Mass Radio Show, visit our website, criticalmass4forbusiness.com, and until our next show, we hope that uh, all of your business decisions will move your company in a positive direction you have been listening to critical mass radio show business talk show focused on exploring topics of interest to ceos who are leading middle market companies with your host richard franzi 